Viewed from the lens of a business, whether in the form of t-shirts, movies, amusement parks, or even cruises, the ubiquity of Disney's empire is a sight to behold. Viewed as a cultural phenomenon, the company and the legacy of its founder in particular demonstrate similarly profound impacts on the moral framework of America and increasingly the world. Tonight we discuss with culture warrior and friend Borzoi how Disney transformed from a traditional storyteller with works such as Cinderella to a revolutionary one with feminist tales and Frozen, as well as the future of the company and how the culture wars going forward can be fought more effectively. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the show. This is actually part two of an episode that we had tried to do in the past and unfortunately we were unable to publish the episode. We got out of the way. We're going to do this a second time and the first time as well we had Borzoi on uh, co-hosting with us and we are pleased to welcome him back once again. Hello Borzoi, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great, guys. I'm very excited to talk about this. I, I loved the, the episode that was never released, so I'm happy to do it again. Well, I I suppose we're, we have there's some advantages to this also because uh, our previous uh, guest <clears throat> had a very, I would say, obtuse take on the question because he was uh, unwilling to, you know, really just apply Occam's razor. Uh, namely, we are talking about Walt Disney. Uh, Disney Corporation, and how something that went from producing, you know, wholesome uh, European folk stories to basically being a device of uh, Jewish culture distortion and perversion. So, uh, where do you want to start, boys? Well, anybody uh, watch Disney Plus lately? <laughs> it's uh, Disney's actually had a five billion dollar revenue decline. Um, and Disney Plus, from what I saw, is actually declining in terms of its viewership, and it's uh, practically losing money. They are hosting it at cost right now. Um, some of the discussions I've seen, kind of just from the business community, uh, one of them is why has Disney kind of lagged on putting its 20th Century Fox properties onto Disney Plus? Um, and two, uh, apparently, they are now charging uh, additional fees to see new films on top of the existing subscription fee, and they won't give you a rebate. Uh, so you actually have to pay extra money to use the service to view content. Um, so it, you know, it's it's a company that's rapidly in decline. Uh, for those who aren't aware, um, Bob Iger, who's been the longtime uh, CEO of Disney and has overseen much of the growth the last two decades practically uh, actually uh, had to forego his retirement to try and manage Disney through the uh, through the crisis so it is app that we're talking about it uh, again 
uh, Disney is now even deeper in its decline since I think we last spoke on the topic. Well, that's actually a good thing, though, when you think about it, because you think about all the children who will be safer now that Bob Iger has less free time. This is this is a good point. He's not the man is not wrong. It does make me wonder part of the strategy as well is that they've been aware that there's going to be problems coming down the road. So the purpose was to buy up every IP as much as possible, be, possible because that's your insurance for when, when there's like, I think there's gonna be a content crunch. It's we're reaching peak content. There's going to be a crunch at some point, And a lot of the technology for the stuff doesn't seem to be the most stable environment at this time but if you have the ips then when you get through this you'll have those same properties and not you know and they, these people don't they never let go of this stuff they're they in fact copyright laws designed around basically designed around how far ahead disney the disney corporation thinks where it used to be it was 13 years after the author's death that was what the copyright basically was i know it's gone through a number of evolutions but disney corporation has made it so that it's in perpetuity yeah, they, well, they were able to lobby for that. Uh, they were, I think it was like, I thought it was only 100 years, but it, from extension from like 75, I didn't know it was perpetuity. So they all own the mouse. Well, it's, the I of... think it's one of those legal trickeries where it's technically the the 75 years, but it's there's a, a loopholes that allow you to basically renew it for one reason or another, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not a lawyer on this, obviously, but it's, it, it, as I understand, it's like effectively in per, in perpetuity because it, once the one it gives them enough time to redo the laws in some way so that they can get the copyright again well there is an interesting aspect too in that uh sumner redstone recently died the uh, former mogul of uh viacom. viacom um and he had this phrase you know content is king and the sumner redstone model was effectively a pure acquisition and grow model um and disney has I think really undertaken that model for many decades now, ever since really the uh, the 1980s has been on a uh, acquisition spree. And it's not really going well from what we, I think our people can kind of piece together. A lot of analysts are actually quite disappointed in Disney. Um, uh, the Disney 20th Century Fox deal, which uh, was very questionable. I know that there was some question of potential antitrust investigation into that sort of uh, deal. Um, actually was performed with debt, with liquid debt. Disney has actually gone into debt now to do content acquisition, which is not Sumner Redstone's model. So they've actually undertaken a, a mission much to their own detriment and, uh, you know, it's it's quite clear now that it's no longer about strictly producing entertainment. It's uh, really a large holding company for a variety of different kinds of previously created entertainment and then finding different ways to essentially repackage that entertainment, package mer- merchandising around it, package, uh, you know, live entertainment, live theme parks, live attractions around it. Uh, Disney has really gotten out of the pure content creation business. Um, a lot of their original IPs have actually done quite poorly. Uh, even some of the Pixar stuff has started to do quite poorly. Uh, so they are now totally reliant on using debt to finance the acquisi- acquisition and repackaging of uh, content that's been produced by others, 
uh, which is you know a very very peculiar model. I don't really think uh, that's what Walt Disney intended, uh, and I don't really think that's uh, a a sustainable uh, strategy. This reminds me of uh, the electronic arts of the video game world acquiring these properties from independent development houses, and then just churning out sequel after sequel with little to no true creative innovation at all. Uh, so I think the most uh, easy example I, in that in that company is probably the, the sports or football or Madden series, where I think we're on probably like the 30th iteration at this point. And it's basically the same game mechanics, and they just update the jersey names. And I don't even yeah. know if they do anything more than that. I mean, it is that basic. Um, and EA has gotten in trouble, you know, just from you're yeah, right. It's very similar to Disney for the video game world. You know, they've they're kind of the the bane of that sphere now. They basically just make sequels and DLC titles for existing property, and they're often criticized for what Disney is now doing on Disney Plus from a financial standpoint. Right, where you basically buy something that's incomplete with, uh, you know, one of the other streaming services. Uh, that baseline streaming service that you get, it, you know what what's in it is is there. Like with Netflix, you're not required to pay really ec- any extra money for something once it's on Netflix. Um, but you know EA does this where you buy an basically incomplete game and they charge you over the next year or two for more content for that game. And Disney is now you know just descended into the depths of like. Uh, pure shareholder enrichment to the point where it's it's like a payment plan just to get or like an installment plan just to get the content that you want i guess uh again i I, this is we'll get into this this is really not at all what walt disney uh saw as the uh the, the overall mission statement for his company uh nothing nothing quite like this was undertaken during his time it's i find this topic of disney is something i i i've I've been thinking about it for the last couple days and i find myself so so difficult to wrap your mind around it because we're obviously analyzing right now from the business perspective but it seems they've shifted heavily towards this idea of disney as identity because you want to keep on you ultimately you're going your customer base comes and goes but it's the hardcore people that matter the most in terms of this and the more that you can have them identify with your brand the more of that stable base you have and there are some kind of groundwork there's some groundwork that's built for this with the kind of multimedia multi-reality experience that they started that disney started creating with the theme parks and all that i was thinking like, what a weird thing that that they created with the theme park. I'm going to create this media property and now I'm going to give you a chance to interact with that media property in real life and pay for the experience of that. It's it's a bizarre thing and I, I now understand why a lot of the continental uh, philosophical types like Umberto Eco and Jean Baudrillard were so baffled and perplexed by it. Well, if there's, a, there's a great channel on YouTube, um, Defunct Land, and... Um, Another one, um, Bright Sun Films, but Defunct Land is, is kind of more relevant to this. But they've both done, um, and you know, kind of videos on the history of different attractions that Disney's made. And Disney used to do um, theme parks or water parks or just kind of outdoor spaces that were not necessarily tied to 
one specific piece of content. Um, it was maybe more like themed for the area, right? Mm-hmm. And like at Disneyland at one point in the 60s and 70s, one of the big attractions at Disneyland was like a donkey ride. Like it, it wasn't themed. It wasn't part of some franchise. You literally like went on a donkey and took a nice little trip through the Southern California, Anaheim, uh, kind of grassy hills for an hour. And then you had to pick. Well, one of them, the most famous of all the Disney rides was Pirates of the Caribbean. And right. that existed, you know, well before the film franchise. Of course, after the film franchise came out, they had to retcon the ride to incorporate the uh, intellectual property of the film. Right. Yeah, I mean, like you go look at what the original parks as well. Even when they started to move towards themes within them, it was all, the the names bear out what they were: Adventureland, Frontierland, right. Fantasyland, Tomorrowland. It was just, it's it's exactly what it says on the tin. Like, okay, we we want to give you some variety here, but it's just we're gonna have this based in some kind of very broad notion and settings. So I imagine like the the donkey ride probably had was either was originally part of Frontierland or Frontierland incorporated the theme because they had the donkey there, whichever way, whichever came first. But there's this sense of like, okay, I'm going to go to this picturesque, picturesque uh, kind of, or picturesque, I don't know, picturesque, completely different word, picturesque uh, encapsulation of uh, of a story or like a feeling of a, or like a West. setting. An old West, like but I'm not interacting with media characters. I'm here to right. I'm here to put on some like a cowboy outfit and get my picture taken because that's kind of cute and kitschy. And they had they had things like I think they got rid of it. Remember, like Tom Sawyer Island was a thing. You know, they're they're they yep. they would in, they would incorporate like a lot of Mark Twain. There there would be more. Um, is, is that the one where they had like jigaboos eating watermelons by the river? <laughs> I, I can't remember, but I, I think like for a while, you know, the idea was uh, not just like creating uh, original content, but also paying homage to uh, to older content and to like themes that inspired Walt Disney and themes that kind of inspired um, kind of general American youth culture in the early 20th century. So King Arthur the stories of Mark Twain are, are both um, kind of featured prominently, or they used to be featured more prominently. And that was what kind of drove the imagination of kids then was, oh, you know, like go, go pull the, the sword from the stone and have like a little fun kind of Renaissance-esque thing, or you have the Old West, or you have the Tom Sawyer stuff. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't always like, um, you know, this movie, The Ride. Right. Yeah. It wasn't always well, this comic book, the ride, or this comic book, the movie. You know, it it didn't it didn't really exist in that way. I think like th- that's really a product of Disney in the 1990s when Iger and all those guys kind of come on the scene. It turns into the the multimedia franchise. I think Eisner was probably the the guy who really yeah. did the full on. Uh, cross-selling stuff where you have the the toys, you have the t-shirts, you have everything that's possibly imaginable, purchasable by the consumer and uh, and sold. And well, um, you, go ahead, Nick. You have two different, I mean, there's a, behind Disney, I mean, you have something that is very valuable. You know, you have the imagination of children. And that translates into two things. It translates into money 
and it translates as well into you know psychological and spiritual domination and manipulation of, of the people. And I I didn't really want to talk about this before we talked about you know the good and you know pay some respects to Walt Disney the man. However, since we are talking about the theme park, I, I think we might as well just address it now and then work backwards. Um, so there is a dark satire that came out a few years ago uh, that was shot largely guerrilla style uh, called Escape from Tomorrow, right? which is a reference in of itself to Tomorrowland, which also was made into a film by, I think, in my opinion, one of the least Jewish, uh, spiritually Jewish filmmakers who makes children's films, uh, Brad Bird. It wasn't actually a bad movie, Tomorrowland, that is. It had, I think, George Clooney in it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it has... <laughs> say what? What's was, that? I mean, its worst crime is that it was boring. It wasn't, like... Yeah, it wasn't... Yeah, weird. it wasn't perverted. It was... Yeah. It. What was so strange about that film in particular, I think, was that it... It was the kind of film that really didn't fit in in the era in we live. It, it, yeah. it is a... It was a bizarrely optimistic film, something that could have been made many many years ago and that i think was the point of the movie but that's what made it kind of surreal watching it it's like nobody watching this film believes that this has any resemblance to what the future holds for us and i like brad bird i mean he, he brad bird's the one who did the incredibles which is uh, a, a good a good film the sequel not not so much uh which i actually saw in theaters when it came out because i liked the original i was the, the only person you know who didn't have a kid watching it with my buddy <laughs> Only, the, the only person with a copy uh, of uh, what uh, the Turner Diary, Diaries underneath his coat while watching it too. Yeah, you're correct. Well, the original one. I mean, was, I know that um, the writer uh, Paul Kersey was a big fan of that as well because the film does. I mean, the original Incredibles film uh, does have very inegalitarian themes. I mean, that's the whole message of it. And the problem with the sequel is it kind of it kind of walks that back a little bit. Um, but Brad Bird's Brad Bird's cool. He made Iron Giant also. Um, there was also Iron Giant nods in the Tomorrowland film, which I liked. But Escape from Tomorrow, on the other hand, is a, was an independent film that, again, was shot more or less guerrilla style. Uh, so without permission of, of Disney to do it. And that did, I don't know how they got away with some of this stuff because they did use the names of certain rides and things like that. Uh, but they did. And... I, I think I'm the only one who watched this besides Borzoi. Uh, what were your impressions of Borzoi? So I want to preface this with a little bit because this was a very interesting and bizarre experience watching this for me. And there's a number of reasons why that is. And it, because I watched it with my fiance and she was kind of curious about this when I had told her that, uh, Hey, I'm doing this podcast. They want me to watch this movie called escape from tomorrow. And she asked, what's that about? I told her what you just said. So we decided to sit down and watch it. And she doesn't mind like crudely made movies or, or unselling movies, but she, this was, we had to pause the movie several times and ended up talking some stuff out because she found it a very very surreal experience for two reasons one the 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 male anxiety within the movie especially the uh, anxiety of fatherhood she actually asked me is this is this the kind of stuff that men actually fathers are actually afraid of like that their sons might not be their own or is this do they is this the kind of anxieties that men actually have and the other thing was i found out she's never actually been to a theme park and a lot of the scenes that the non-horror-esque scenes actually terrified her even more. Uh, she had a—I found out she's actually got this revulsion to theme parks. They, she calls it simulated and fake fun, and she's never really in, 
she's only seen the seen theme parks on television and movies and she's never never liked it and when i told her this reaction that the uh that the director of this movie, because I looked into this, the director of the movie, his his wife was a nurse from the Soviet former Soviet Union. She had never, the first time she went to a theme park, she uh, she said this was worse than working the psych ward at the hospital. It's the movie is very effective in in the theme park dread. Now it kind of it goes off the rails, and ultimately, I don't think the the director had a strong vision of what he wanted to do with the movie. I think he just had a certain couple ideas, and he wanted to see if he could execute it guerrilla style. But where it's extremely effective is in how unsettling it is in terms of the way that it marries the how one bad day at a simulated fake place that's supposed to be fun can go so dark and awry in so many unusual ways. I, I don't think it was a lack of vision. I think that it was the, the its flaws are more due to the limitations that came from the production. Mm -hmm. There were just certain things that he could not do, right? Because of what he was working with a low budget and B uh, not having actual legitimate access to the sets that he wants to use. Uh, I, I think it's actually a pretty coherent film, and I think it it hits on a lot of things that have been floating around in the uh, conspiracy world for a long time, so to speak. Uh, Disney always has kind of served as a uh, is an interesting and dark metaphor for America in the sense that it was it, you know it presents a very innocent facade, but beneath that, I mean, you have some very sinister things happening, things that we can verify have happened, considering. Uh, things that have come out, revelations have come out regarding child abuse in the past few years. I mean, this is stuff that most of us knew was happening, but more people have been forced to, you know, address. Uh, and an ongoing theme in it is the trauma-based mind control. And one of the things that I've seen talked about with respect to Disney films in general uh, is there is a strong, I mean, most Disney films, I mean, this is not true only of Disney films. This is true of a lot of uh, mythology and folklore in general, but it, it often begins or involves heavy elements of trauma. Uh, recurring themes are, you know, the de the the sudden and unexpected death of the father, uh, abandonment, things like this that can actually, you know, they traumatize children and this helps imprint these things onto their minds for better or for worse, you know. And what you see in that, I mean, there's implications, for example, that the protagonist is himself a victim of some kind of trauma and that he's uh, having these hallucinations and, you know, almost schizophrenic episodes uh, because he's being triggered, but based on past trauma. And the thing about something like Disney is it's it's so widespread. You know, everyone has seen this and it's a template. I mean, that's what they're doing. Like, I, I kind of look at, for example, the Marvel, the, the cape shit as them trying to do the same thing that they did to children, uh, to adults. And well, it kind of works because it. of the end. Yeah, they see it already. And so they, they're putting the same patterns in. And this is the stuff that people, I mean, this is, they are the dream makers, right? And this, the, this is the, the nightmare that they've projected onto uh, the American mind. And it's something that I don't think really very many people are fully removed from. Some people maybe go to like, you know, really kind of specialized esoteric schools that like prohibit them from watching this kind of stuff. Uh, I know of a few of those, but for the most part, I mean, this is a mass phenomenon. Did you interpret the ending then kind of as, as a the abuser claiming the soul of the victim kind of way? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, he's basically, I mean, spoiler, like he's he's replaced and turned into I, it's 
I, there's a, there's a big theme of, uh, uh, emasculation, right? I mean, he's, uh, if the father is taken out of the picture, if the, if the, you know, the immediate authority is gone, then the family is totally at the mercy of, you know, these sort of occult powers is, is how I took it. That, and that makes sense because yeah, that scene with, with this would-be Imagineer, basically, it's there's this implication that there's different factions or forces fighting, but that's never really made clear. And it could you have no idea to what extent this uh, supposed battle that's going on, you know, beneath the surface is is real or not. But you do have this Imagineer type character who's a, a construction himself who basically. Tell, is looking for these implanted memories within his head, and that this is this is who, uh, your memory of who you're supposed to be. So I can see what you're saying. I can see what that where you're going with that. Well, and also you have other themes like the ex- the sexual exploitation of you know American children by foreigners. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one right there with the. I, I, I that was actually my biggest one of my biggest disappointments with the movie is that they didn't explore that that it gets one call out and then one confirmation and it doesn't really go any further with that I, I think that would have been in just from a filmmaking perspective that would have been a, a lead to pursue a little bit further into the movie but well my overall kind of my overall take would be that the idea is that it's a theme park well it's it's a theme park for who yeah you know you have these the multi you know, it's a playground, you know, for basically perverts and exploiters and uh, alien forces, essentially. Uh, and this is, and, and sorry, go ahead. you know, it will, it presents itself as in an inviting way for people, you know, to fall into the trap. And then you, know, you have like the, the protagonist uh, is being led around by these uh, nymph figures. Yeah. Right. And so it uses uh, sex and you know, the charm of innocence for, you know, on the multi you have different things that different, the different figures are trying to get out of it, even on the family level. Uh, what the children want, what the father wants, what the wife wants, and then the forces that actually run the show, what they want out of it. And, you know, things are never what they seem. Is, is and, the, and, and they, they, they operate right in the open in real life as well. It's just people either choose not to see it or they don't understand what they're looking at. I mean, Secret societies and secret clubs exist all across the Disney clubs. Club 33 is one of the more well-known private lounges. But there's even the there's even these uh, what's called Disneyland social clubs, which is groups of Disneyland fans who basically function like motorcycle gangs. And they're very secretive. There's very little that's known about their subculture. And they've gotten into trouble for basically engaging in protection money rackets on other uh, on other factions within this Disneyland Disney World club world. It's a very it's a very bizarre but very real very criminal reality that exists under the surface of this manufactured fun. Well, it's also, a, it's a it's a perfect metaphor for America. I mean, it it really is. Also, uh so over the last like 2-3 years there's been a number of high profile mass arrests of child porn distributors and uh, uh, child predators, um, many of whom were part of a ring who were working together. And in that ring, several were Disney's, of, or I'm sorry, employees of Disney, um, predominantly down in Florida. There have been uh, a, a series of arrests made both the last year and this year. 
on in an ongoing investigation. And so these people, some of whom work in the park, some of them have worked in uh, Disney corporate for over 20 years. And they come from all walks of life, janitors, uh, content experience managers, park employees. Um, these, there, there is a definitely a child porn problem in, amongst a network of Disney employees. And it's just slowly kind of been cracked open to the surface. And I, I think, um, I think Borzoi is right. There's probably many factions within this sprawling company uh, with interests that I think we would find, uh, you know, horrid or uh, <laughs> distasteful. And uh, it, it's, it's sort of shocking that this is only now kind of coming to the surface. And who knows how long these networks have been operating within Disney and how these people were recruiting each other and how they were making contact with each other. I mean, do, I mean, how does this work? Do you like walk up to other Disney employees and say, hey, I'm a, a fucking pedophile. Like, are you one too? I mean, it's sort of, if you ever look at the number of, of um, children that go missing at Disney parks or Disney facilities, um, it's kind of shocking. It's kind of okay. Shocking. I didn't really, didn't really want to go there, but basically, I mean, think about it. Like you're talking about a firm with a lot of money that controls very large pieces of property that, by their by their own design, like on their surface, they have a lot of you know underground labyrinth type structures. You know, you know people there. <laughs> there's a lot of things that can be hidden in a place like that right yeah they have their own private security you know they they have the ability to control this completely and they have things that you know nobody else knows about i mean it's yeah. as simple as that and there's a lot of social clubs and some of them are official some of them are unofficial and, the, and even the unofficial ones uh, because disney is known for having this a special relationship with people who want to promote their stuff if you want to take video of Disneyland or Disney World, if they don't think it's going to cause any negative image to them, they let people do that. It's not they don't they do not care about this stuff, and it's, but but they do monitor and they do keep an eye on it. So you constantly have these cameras. You have so many employees. It's so easy for many of these people because it's a, it is a surveillance park for people to notice. Like, oh, this guy comes here a lot. Oh, this guy's part of this club. I can kind of like maybe I'll go talk to him at this point. I can. They have ways of find of signaling out to one another, especially when you have all this different stuff. Then you have all these factions, these social clubs, these secret societies that do exist. I mean, I mentioned Club 33. Who knows? That's the known private lounge. Who knows what other lounges that aren't even officially listed? We know they. they we know they have to exist just because the amount of people that have made mention of them. It's just they're not officially on the books in any capacity. And the thing is, like, the sexual harassment is prevalent on every single level as well. There's, I'll send you the link, Adam, for the notes. But there was a story, I remember, from 12 years ago, and I had to find a web archive of it, of a guy who played Captain Jack Sparrow for the for one of the parks. And because that was a very popular character, he had no shortage of women that drunk and sober and barely legal and, and not even legal that were constantly propositioning him as the character. This is what I was getting out this whole Disney as identity aspect in the Disney fantasy that they sell people on. And he 
he's like looking at this from a detached kind of like, oh, this is look at how crazy it is to be a Disney character. Look what I've gotten myself into. That's just he's just a regular guy. How many of these thousands of people that work there have realized what a great way this is to get access to people I want to have access to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, and they have that city too. What is that? I think it's in one of the American Gulf states. Uh, they have that little—I I don't know if you can call it a city, but it's a—it is a Disney-owned town, and it's not a theme park per se. It's like people live there. Well, I know they have those cruises, and cruises uh, <laughs> even before COVID were bad enough. But the fact that it's a Disney-run cruise with Goofy popping through the hallways would just drive me absolutely overboard. Literally, in uh, international waters. Yeah, with the sharks, I'd take the sharks over that. Yeah, I mean, not even the the Freemasons are. I think it's in Florida. Not even the Freemasons are organized to the extent that the that the uh, the Disney organization is in terms of the layers of complexity and the layers of of truth and what what you're allowed to know within an organization has. Disney is the ultimate secret society. Yeah, and I guess we should consider how it is that we got to this point because. These certainly weren't the intentions of Walt Disney, who, by all accounts, was an honorable man. Jews couldn't stop bitching about him, so I guess there's got to be something there. Well, yeah, and also he had uh, he was one of the few people in Hollywood who, when Lainey Riefenstahl visited the United States, uh, he showed her an early copy of Fantasia in a private screening. Uh, And they were quite upset about that, too. He had his brother. Uh, you know, his brother kind of helped run the show as he went into decline. So he wasn't alone, but he he was definitely sort of a pariah, I think, in the early days. he uh, The company was like always in debt and always on the verge of bankruptcy in the 40s. Uh, I remember like one apocryphal story. He actually took out a loan from his own life insurance just to have enough working capital to keep his little uh, animation operation alive so he was you know he, he he like fundamentally believed in what he was doing he, he you know this was his his life's mission and he by all accounts uh you know drew a great deal of joy in in the artistry and in you know the distribution of this um you know very kind of uh milk toast and quaint content by today's standards uh, there's nothing particularly flashy about it, but it, it drew people's imagination and it was fun and it was uh, to the point and poignant. And then um, yeah, I think in the 50s, after him and his brother both passed, the company immediately just went into decline. No one could really figure out how to run Disney properly as like, a, as like an equity shack until Eisner and all those crew came in in the 80s and 90s like it from like I think the from 1960 to 1980 Disney was always teetering on the the edge of failure um, just because it it wanted to stick to this original vision that Walt had uh, had kind of created for it uh, and it was not intended to be a massive holding company for all kinds of, of, of multimedia products. It, it was it was intended strictly as sort of a, almost like a, a, a an art house as a company, and you know they would indulge in little like quaint theme parks and property acquisition, but certainly not in into 
mass marketing and, and certainly not into uh, you know acquiring other people's property. I think that Walt probably would have frowned on that sort of behavior of, of taking others' property and then just trying to repackage it. Uh, the, you know, it, it was more focused on using what they had and then trying to do something uh, that was based on sort of common folk themes or common old stories and retell them in, in a more modern way. But he was certainly not interested in going to other film studios and, and purchasing their, their, uh, their products. That was, that's, you know, that's when, that's like when the Wall Street guys take over Disney and it becomes strictly about equity distribution. Well, like many things, it was something that the enemy never could have created. They could only take it over and degrade right. it and use it as a weapon against us. He's kind of the, in, in some sense, the, the Norman Rockwell of the, of the, vi- of the, of the film, of film, really, because he I would say was drawing animation. on a lot of. Yeah, well, I mean, because he did live action and animation, and even in the live action, has some of these like these folk tale, quaint, and what his many numerous detractors often called overly optimistic and sentimental sensibilities that he has. That's I kind of get this when I think about all that all the old Disney properties when he that were around when he was still alive. I get that feeling and that sense yeah. from it. There's a it, quaintness to it, even for the time period. It's almost like it. Jimmy Stewart movies would be too harsh for Walt. You know, <laughs> they're too edgy. Well, have you seen like the, the the American art scene in the 1920s and 30s it was absolutely terrible. Like it's it's just terrible art. It's it's all this terrible expressionism. Like you know, the United States imported all of this refuse from Europe to come do terrible art and you know he would he was the bane of the the artistic community strictly because he wasn't indulging in this kind of ridiculous fawning over art that is just fundamentally ugly and bleak and and uh, you know, and sort of ostentatious in, in, in its in its sort of blandness. Uh, you know, he, he kind of was a guy that focused on the classical form, the, right. the classical sense of, of 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 drawing, the classical sense of framing, of having something you can actually visually interpret. You know, in the 1920s and 30s, even the early 40s, that was just that was an aberration in the American art scene. If you go to any like major art gallery in the United States, and you look at the art from that period, it it is predominantly terrible. <laughs> and he I, was, he was probably hated by these people because he just he didn't go along with that. He was from he was from Kansas, right? He he was a, a normal guy that didn't really want to. Uh, he didn't understand this this sort of foreign approach to American art. Well. I've always shared the sensibility that Disney had in terms of just what my preferences are. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to create the the brilliant uh, masterpieces that I thought were really the Disney classics, uh, the the stuff that really people think of today as as true Disney um, arcana and Americana, uh, things like Snow White, the Seven Dwarfs, and 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 things that really come from Europe and have kind of a character to them that is tied to the forest and medieval times. If you look at what they were trying to do 
not only after Disney died, uh, when I think his brother was trying to piece things together, but especially after they brought in the New Yorkers uh, to try to appease Wall Street, at least, uh, the style really changed. And it became uh, much more multicultural, much more progressive, much more liberal. Uh, and also the animation tone and uh, style changed dramatically. Uh, it became much more digitized, obviously. But even before it became fully digital with uh, the acquisition of Pixar and just the, the really just overemphasis on digital, which I've never particularly cared for. I don't really like the the sense that I'm looking at a computer screen. I want to actually enjoy a, a work of art. For some reason, I, I find it more fantastical. Um, but even before that, you could look at something like Lion King uh, and and see that the just the the way the the pencil or whatever instrument they were putting on paper and then probably transcoding through a computer. Uh, the way they did that just lacked the the sense of detail and care and the lack of uh, probably painting as well, like the watercolors that I'm, I'm trying to recall. I, I didn't really watch these much after I was a child, but I just, I do recall the sense of wonder when I watched those films. And I share uh, Disney's confusion when it comes to things like modern art. I don't understand why this is particularly uh, interesting or even good looking. I mean, obviously, it, it's usually quite offensive uh, aesthetically. Uh, maybe it's thought provoking in other ways, but for children, especially, this is not something that you need to start uh, imparting in your movies. And that's what a lot of the more recent films have done. Uh, they put a lot of the, uh, the feminist uh, agenda into it, they put a lot of the um, multicultural agenda into it and it's uh, gay agenda is, is i think i think uh correct me if i'm wrong but didn't a, a a recent animated film from them have a bisexual it's it's a disney plus show it, it features the first openly like bisexual uh poc character i think like the character is supposed to be like guatemalan or something oh great <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I you know it it yeah. So they're it, not just going after American children anymore. Well, yeah, that's that's the global model now is to inflict the damage they they've been busy inflicting on uh, on America to the whole planet. I mean, if you guys remember, uh, I believe ABC was one of the uh, larger mainstream uh, supporters of the war in Iraq and and things like that. And Disney was. Disney owns ABC. So the Walt Disney Corporation was like doing the propaganda bit for war in Iraq back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Just to, you know, just to kind of give you an idea for this is not this is not the Mickey Mouse company. You know, this is a this is a company with global ambition that is committed to crafting films that are um, more and more stupid and can are more more just kind of like pure visual experience uh who was the i think was it martin scorsese who was like verbally accosted for saying these films are just theme park rides yeah, yeah. he he was talking about he was talking specifically about cape shit and yeah. also what, what you're saying that reminds me of the ending of full metal jacket where you know they're walking away from the slaughter with the m i c k e y 
M O U S E, who's the leader of the pack that's made for you and me, you know. Well, and the funniest thing about all that, and this is where there may be some kernel of truth in this criticism that was made, but they definitely projected a lot of this and then embraced that projection because what Walt Disney, the man, was criticized for with him and his company is that he was promote that his stuff was overly commercial because of its sentimentality and that there the patriotism and individualism within it uh, and that but also what you see and hear a lot of criticism of him is that he's very imperialistic well if walt disney is imperialistic then i don't know what you call post walt disney disney corporation if that man was imperialistic what this all is everything that he, that his critics of his time accused him of the walt disney corporation has actually embraced and taken as an actual virtue and value well, as Nick said, these people could not have created this on their own. And so they, these critics are probably like the same uh, NKVD descendants that eventually spawned Michael Eisner and Bob Iger, who took over the company and then went about opening Disneyland's in, on multiple continents, uh, basically trying to create content that can be approached and consumed by the entire planet equally. And undertaking a massive effort to slowly build up its presence in media distribution, streaming, sports, and just about every piece of popular American kind of uh, pulp content in order to uh, you know reach the broadest appeal possible. Uh, again, Walt Disney being a quote, imperialist is is like just the ultimate projection given uh, given how Disney operates now. I mean, does I mean, I don't know because I don't watch a lot of these movies anymore. But does Disney actually put out anything original anymore? Is has that happened in the last few years? I saw they remade Mulan. <laughs> the funniest thing is all their legacy and I know I think somebody already alluded to it earlier in this episode. All their legacy stuff, especially Mickey Mouse, it doesn't get much screen time anymore. They do a call they'll do they'll do some kind of like little show or something or like a little short just or or find some avenue to use the property in some maybe like in a video game or something. But there's not going to ever be another Mickey Mouse movie. They're constantly in the prowl for trying to find the, what the next most relevant thing and i think that's only been amplified more even more so after the success of frozen but they don't even care about their own products it's just there to as a merchandising thing have yeah. you seen have you seen frozen i have what is your take on frozen <laughs> it's very it's very flash and it's very much there's a very insidious quality to it where the little girls that love that movie don't really understand what they're signing up for. It's it, it, ha it has that very sickly cloying, but you think it tastes really good when you when you drink it kind of soda pop quality to it. Isn't it like Sex in the City for kids or something? Yes. Yes, I'd say exactly that. It's, it's a horrible, horrible analogy, and therefore it is correct. Yeah, there's definitely an undertone. I watched it recently for the first time. 
I can't remember why. I think I was like really hungover and I was like trying. <laughs> I, my buddy was over and I was like, sometimes I do this. Like, I'll like, it's like a game where it's like you, I'm waiting for someone to like, you know, fucking like throw something at the television or like physically turn it off, but then they don't. And so it keeps playing and we end up watching it. And I was a little bit curious because, you know, I see the shit everywhere. And I didn't find it to be very insightful watching it. Like I didn't, it, I didn't, I can't say I really got why. I guess I kind of get why it appeals to little girls, but not really. I mean, were you too hungover for the MK Ultra to take effect? Is that why <laughs> sat there and watched it? Well, I think it's because he was too busy doing his own MK Ultra operation on his friends. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember when I never, I, you know, I have actually never like watched that whole movie, but I remember I was in college when that came out and at my university, which might, which shall be remain nameless. Uh, there was like a flash mob thing to that. Let it go song. And there was well over 30, you know, 19 year olds who were, singing uh, one of the plazas to this just randomly one day uh to getting openly emotional as they sang like tears down their eyes um I, yeah i mean you know that was the moment when i decided to read siege uh I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but no, i mean you know it, it, it is i do, I do want to say like it does speak to the fucking power of these films i mean i i I'm not kidding when I, this is like MK Ultra. It it is interesting that their films do have the ability to resonate so much with people emotionally that it becomes to define their whole life. Kind of what Borza was saying at the beginning. People in there are tens of millions of Americans right now who have own like products related to movies made ostensibly for children who are in their 30s and this is this is like there's like a whole sub industry around cultural procurement and refinement related to disney content it, it's it's shocking like it, it is absolutely shocking well think about this i mean this it's one of the greatest tricks that the you know the culture parasite has where and basically you know mind fuck an entire generation to the point where they can get those people when they become adults and they become parents to do it to their own children well and it gets infused with modern politics which is i think where it becomes dangerous uh i i have to say that i have seen quite a few suburban uh, soccer moms recently Rocking the uh, the Princess Leia, a female's places in the Resistance yard sign, uh, you know, like it it's it's become an aspect of of political stance. The same way these these goofballs have like Harry Potter quotes and all that sort of stuff. It's become an aspect of their entire life is is referencing. Like, you know, cheap pieces of fiction. Uh, yeah, but okay, so we, we have to hesitate about underestimating this stuff because it is, there is a lot of sophistication that goes into both this and into the cape shit. You know, it's like on its face, there is an esoteric layer to it where like if you watch some of these, I remember uh, the, the Shrek film, you know, a long time ago. Uh, that was one that was very egregious in the sense that it, it 
it had like these it was like two films at once it, it, it was actually kind of a uh, obscene film but a lot of the obscenity to it was something that only adults would really be able to get i mean i'm sure it sinks into the little brains too somehow but they do that because like parents like, you know, I see this all the time, man. I see parents who like, they use this stuff as a way to babysit their children and then they'll have it playing nonstop. And it's, you know, something that they end up having to watch too. And so this, the stuff that's geared to parents and to children at the same time. Right. And I've been thinking about this and I've, because I had a lot of interesting conversations that came out of watching that film. And we ended up trying to analyze this whole Disney film aspect as she likes a couple of movies, but she's never been involved in the whole Disney culture. But we both know women who are obsessed with Disney and Disney is identity to them. So I started trying to puzzle out why this is what is the power of these films what is built into this and it's like i don't even think i'm getting i'm scratching the surface on it but you have this combination of this this pseudo rite of passage that a lot of these movies give the viewer especially from a young age combined with this idealized form of, of your individuality as well as these films are suffused with a with a with an obscenity with a sexual imagery in this i am very there is a strong connection between pornography and disney and a lot of the fucked up fetishes that come out of all that they go some of them have their beginnings in disney films you really trace the the genealogy on some of that stuff so it implants the stuff very deep into people's minds at an early age. And then it creates, I mean, that's not for nothing that Nick called this like trauma based. What was it? Trauma based, not mind control. Disney films are inherently traumatic and they do inflict traumatic mental wounds, especially in the film itself on onto young people. I mean, think of like, for example, the scene in the Lion King where the father dies. I mean, that is a severely traumatic scene. You know, there's no going back. He's not. There's no magic wand that's waved. The father is dead. Are you at all familiar? Are any of you familiar with Henry Darger? I know the name. Oh, that's the guy who, that from Illinois who did all those weird. Like he had that whole thing with this whole this whole magical story of all these drawings. Drew like a lot of involved naked little girls, didn't it? Yes, he was a. There's a film that was made about him, a documentary called Into the. Rest realms of the unreal and he was it's been years since i've seen it but i often think about him because in a certain sense i i consider him as basically you know the uh the archetype like a final product of of this of the disney mindset that we're we're dealing with here and what it is i mean he was mentally you know retarded uh in some way i don't know exactly what his specific condition was but he was working as a janitor uh, throughout his entire life, that was the job he could do, and he kept to himself. Uh, 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 but upon his apartment, uh, these paintings, like like a lot of these, and he had this this book that was a mixture of paintings and sort of a children's book, but and it was very long, and it has been published in some forms as kind of a curiosity. I mean, it would be impossible to edit it into something truly coherent and also to find a market for it, but. Uh, it, he's been sort of this figure because what what happened was there were these cases of these missing girls and a lot of them bore the likeness of of girls that were in his artwork and the the fiction the actual written word uh, contains some very dark stuff and I, I think that this, this is a common theme that you see amongst uh, child predators 
others and other other assorted damaged uh, people where you know obviously like the soccer mom is not on that level but i think that there is what disney affords what these kinds of things afford is they create the entire illusion of your childhood and so your childhood has nothing but these these images and these you know forms that have been implanted in you and the child childhood is is you know something always the people would like to go back to in some form or another especially when you know life becomes troubled in one way or another it's the time of innocence or at least the time that you think was of innocence because sometimes you know bad things happen and then this is how you wait you were treated into or something like this I, I, there, I think this is some of the psychology that's going on there and uh, it's not surprising that you know weirdos would be drawn to creating uh, ch- children's material because it's, I think it's very hard for adults you know you have to maybe be somebody like a, a Walt Disney someone who is really is just kind of a pure soul who's you know na- kind of naive Midwesterner on a certain level I don't know how naive he was by the end of his life but it's very difficult for, for mature adults who have dealt with actual realities of life to put themselves in a headspace material that is, you know, truly innocent. In fact, it's very rare. I mean, look at some of the most famous children's fables, like the Brothers Grimm. I mean, these aren't, you know, we think of them as children's fables, but there's very little innocence involved. Well, that was one of the theories why Disney was struggling in, like, the 70s, which was relatively speaking compared to other decades maybe not modern uh it was a dark time but it was a rough time and disney was traditionally a much more optimistic hopeful uh some would say naive uh storytelling company and those stories were meeting up with things like taxi driver where a guy is basically shaving his head and going on a murderous rampage against the the town pimp and it's just hard to put up uh you know goofy and mickey against that and expect to sell tickets and i i guess they were able to make the transition into the the 90s when maybe america somewhat uh uh, you know, resolved some of the crime issues. Crime did go down quite a bit. And so I don't know if that explains some of the resurgence of Disney. But I would also say America has gone online, not no pun intended, uh, to really escape the ridiculousness of things that are going on. And I think actually uh, today, people, uh, despite having horrible environmental conditions, have retreated so far into their internet and computer and electronic and smartphone cocoons that they're actually less cynical in some ways because they they live in these echo chambers and curate their little walled gardens so much that if they ever happen to wander out the front door, they just stumble right back inside onto Disney Plus and just avoid the whole the whole mess. Um, so I'm I'm trying to like explain how Disney has. Until recently, perhaps, with uh, some of the acquisition overpaying and uh, COVID stuff, they they have seemingly done fairly well. I think their stock was performing quite well until uh, about the last year. Uh, It's interesting. One one of my favorite artists uh, that really addresses these themes thoroughly throughout his career is Terry Gilliam. And... Uh, ter- I, I don't remember, Boyzoy, if I went on your program to discuss the film Brazil or not. I, I feel like yes. I did. Yes, you did. Yeah, it's one, that, it's one was, of my that, that was not one of your fever dreams, Nick, or one of your weird fantasies that you have. That one. Yeah, was right, exactly. And so that I mean that Brazil deals with that from the perspective of an adult who lives in a society that offers no hope and only slavery 
And the way that he addresses, you know, the way he copes with it is by retreating into fantasy. But of all of Terry Gilliam's films, uh, Brazil's my favorite, but he also did, by the way, a very, I, I think, underrated uh, Brothers Grimm film. It got a lot of hate, but I actually think it was good. Um, you know, come at me, bro. But the uh, <laughs> the darkest of his films, which I put off watching until recently, it, it, easily the darkest, very difficult film to watch in a lot of ways, is the film Tideland. And I think Tideland sums up this with respect to children, because what the premise of Tideland is basically a child is being subjected to basically the worst forms of abuse, abandonment and horror that you could possibly happen. I mean, uh, her father ODs on heroin and she's left to wander this countryside where there's, you know, other damaged people and you know nefarious actors. But the way that she copes with this and much of the film's perspective is told from the, uh, her fantasies and her imagination. Because children, in certain sense, are resilient to a point, you know, it because eventually they're going to have to come into the world. And if they've they've been able to you know, shield themselves and, and cocoon themselves in some kind of fantasy, uh, they may not be able to transition correctly into reality uh, when the time comes. But that if you have the stomach for it, that movie is very good, but it is it is extremely dark. So I wanted to say it's interesting. Adam brought up Taxi Driver, and you know, how do you? Oh, was that what he was talking about? That he was talking about Nick for when he was describing that. There was wait, what? It was, never mind, it was a joke. No, 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 no. <laughs> when he was talking about shaving, so, shaving, so, shaving your head Adam, and going after your local pamba. <laughs> yeah, so Adam brought up Taxi Driver earlier, and you said it. You made a good point that it's hard to throw goofy against uh you know that kind of film especially in an era as as terrible as the 1970s and you know disney did get into that game though disney purchased miramax in the 90s and worked with harvey weinstein and basically produced for over a decade uh a litany of uh sexually pervasive and violent and kind of transgressive films of all shapes and sizes. Um, so Disney was not above, as a company, was not above getting into that racket when they realized that it, you know, basically that point, you know, America is becoming a more cynical country. We have a, a declining populace. People are less and less interested in optimism. Even in the 90s, people were less interested in optimism. And so we might as well create content, not for the family, but for different groups of people at any given time. We'll have the general action adventure stuff occasionally, maybe for the family. And that kind of became Pixar for some time. Uh, and, and, you know, certain certain franchises. But they had Miramax strictly as a way of generating revenue from a market that was uh, feeding off of and feeding into, I think, the growing cynicism and alienation a lot of Americans were feeling. And the, the, the entire notion of the art house, uh, you know, film connoisseur and, and the Harvey Weinstein film award racketeering operation and all that sort of stuff. Disney was in on that. Mostly, I think, because they saw it as a great way to make money, uh, but also uh, partially because it granted them that kind of maybe seal of approval from the, the film critic community 
that uh, they too were capable of entering into this sort of morass of of hopelessness and of what was perceived as being adult-worthy entertainment. I think that's what the Miramax acquisition and their collaboration with Weinstein um, was really about at its core. And you know, Disney has faced uh, actually increased scrutiny um, over Weinstein. Um, there's been multiple allegations that Disney executives uh, took the time to protect Weinstein. There's at least one person who's filed a, I think, $60 million lawsuit against Disney uh, over the Weinstein fiasco. And so uh, this is, again, a company that's, that's uh, descended very rapidly into like the, the scum of Hollywood um, in the passing of the, the original Disney family. And has now ingratiated itself in a in a community that is increasingly like obsessed with trying to be transgressive, trying to be violent, trying to be uh, sexually um, forward thinking, I guess. And it's it doesn't show any signs of stopping. You know that uh, Disney I don't think has a real relationship with Miramax anymore. It doesn't have a relationship with Harvey Weinstein anymore. Um, but it doesn't preclude Disney from getting into that game again. And I think increasingly, uh, you know, they've been able to fulfill the transgressiveness and the violence and sort of the insanity of Miramax films with their sports acquisitions. You know, Disney is basically overseeing all of these, um, these indignant freaks, uh, you know, kneeling for the national anthem at a football game. Disney owns ESPN. They own all the anchors who applaud and cheer this on. They pay their bills. So Disney, you know, is ultimately overseeing, I think, their version of adult entertainment, which is sports, and, and trying to do exactly what they've been doing to their other kinds of multimedia products, which is corrupt them and, and uh, merchandise them and, and wrap it in a nice little package and engage at the same time in, in sort of social crusading. Um, it, it's a very, very uh, powerful, multi-pronged approach to cultural domination. And I think Hank uh, has said this before, and he, I think he would say it if he were here tonight. Uh, Disney, you know, the Walt Disney Corporation is one of the primary obstacles to any real formation of a genuine American culture. Um, Yes, yes. And so if I could tie in what you're saying here, Hans, with the points I was trying to make, if I had to sum up what we're dealing with here as simply as I could, I'd say that it is a form of arrested development. And when you talk to tie together, you know, sports ball with uh, childhood trauma, uh, child abuse, you know, sex slavery, et cetera, it it is, I mean, because the worst, the archetype and the reason I brought up uh, deranged man like Henry Darger is because he really represents that where it's somebody who has never, for whatever reasons, whatever happened, never really to grow and mature as an adult emotionally and spiritually. And like Disney is, that's the exact, that's what is being deployed against America. American culture as a whole has been in arrested development since the European war and it has not grown and it has only stagnated. And then this is on the individual level as well but this is happening you know to families and to people who are still caught up in this they have to grow they haven't been able to address what's happening in the world around them as mature and i do think that disney 
bears largely the blame for this. And I mean, it's just one tentacle of Hollywood at this point, but it's the one that's pointed at the children. One of the most telling things as well about about Disney, the Disney company, isn't what they promote. It's what they don't promote anymore. And Nick has said this twice now in the episode, but it's completely on point that they couldn't they would not be able to create what Walt Disney created. Only Walt Disney could have created Tomorrowland. And there's never going to be another Tomorrowland. There never will be. This is a part this was this was his vision of the future. Disney had a very future Walt Disney had a very forward for all that he's ta- talked about as like this old conservative heartland fogey. There's no been no other American in the 20th century that had quite the the forward looking vision of, of science and exploration that he had, at least with the platform that he did his his park tomorrow. It was had, almost archaeo futuristic. Yeah. I mean, in it, the sense that it was backwards looking into the, the European roots of, of American culture and forward looking. To, I mean, his, his producer for the park, Ward Cam, Kimball, they had Werner von Braun come and and do technical consultation for the park. He for his inauguration on it, he said tomorrow can be a wonderful age. Our scientists today are opening the doors of the space age to achievements that will benefit our children and generations to come. The Tomorrowland attractions have been designed to give you an opportunity to participate in adventures that are a living blueprint of our future. I can't even imagine anybody saying something like that today even if they meant what they were saying. Well, when you look at Tomorrowland, I wanted to bring this up earlier. Um, you know, Tomorrowland was was like a big um, exposition park almost. It, it was like uh, there were corporate partnerships for a while. And this was in the golden age of American industry. And so you would have DuPont and General Motors and GE and uh you know alcoa and, and you know the, like the titans of american industry like real industry uh and, and obviously uh people like von braun and you would have uh you know people who are more into aeronautics people who were to all realms of chemistry uh would come to the park they'd have exhibits they would show off corporate r d for free to those who had paid the price of admission they would walk people through what they're working on. They would have scientists and employees and technicians come to show things off. They would try and create this newfangled, uh, but very kind of earnest, futuristic aesthetic with everything, right? They they wanted to imagine the future right in front of you. And they wanted to show you a picture of what the future might look like. And that's all gone now because American industry is gone. Uh, you know, American ingenuity and the innovative spirit, the, what did we call it on the, the, the episode for, uh, for Hoover, uh, the Promethean spirit uh, of that era. Well, he is, actually talked about the rugged individual. I don't know if he coined that, but that was uh, one of the earlier usages of that the, term, the, if I'm not the, mistaken. The, the rugged individual, but also the Promethean spirit of American industry and science, you know, and, and bringing the light to the masses and that that sort of message was part of tomorrowland and i think that you know if you try to do that today people would say that's antiquated that's hokey you know that that's like from the 50s it would accuse you of being anachronistic you know people now actually they they do but there's the exception of 
Elon Musk. And for whatever reason, the stars have aligned, again, no pun intended, or the CIA has aligned behind him. But the media seems to consider him untouchable. And his wonky ideas about going to Mars, which I think is basically a waste of time, considering that half of our major cities are on fire, um, seems to distract the population, which is part of what the point is. Time. We got to get the hell off this planet. Dude. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like the moon <laughs> stuff was like during the same uh, racial unrest during the 60s as a distraction. I mean, yeah. again, this is one of my suspicions behind this guy. It's like, what is, and he goes on Rogan and Rogan's moving to Austin next to Alex Jones. I mean, it just screams of spookery to me, but, um, you know, I <coughs> well, what does Hank call him? He calls him, uh, the Reddit whisper. <laughs> yeah. That's what he is. is. But, you know, I, I want to say too, I think, um, uh, I think, what you saying? There's like, no one really like, uh, Walt, who's kind of imbibed that American spirit. The only other man I can, that forward-thinking optimism, the only other man I can think of who did, on, other than uh, Von Braun, Von Braun had come to mind, would be Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Henry Ford, for sure, I think, really believed in the optimism of America, really believed in the kind of, the, the old ways and, and the, the yeoman American man and and trying to bring happiness and, and bring a, a slice of a better life to everyone you know for for a low cost uh, you know that well, the attitude was that technology would serve these new technologies right. would come to serve and improve the lives of the people as opposed right. to be tools to dominate them and enslave them and, and even the to his spirit under Aryan futurism is what it was and, and, and <laughs> yes to, to Ford's additional credit I would argue he came to realize that that have and even though it was his own uh, concept he came to realize that it may have been misguided because he started to see the effects of industrialization and urbanization on the working class and how they were basically being stripped away from their own land and they had to work in these giant factories uh, and well, he, he River Rouge, right? That he grew to hate because it was this massive yeah. factory that kind of went on forever. And it, yeah, well, yeah. And he lived out his days living in sort of a pastoral existence at the in his twilight years. He did. Years. He and took to up camping. My, to get on my, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. get on my box for a minute. I have been posting on the Twitter a lot lately about the joys of car ownership and the automobile. And this is this comes to a point I want to make about. Uh, the conservative or reactionary take on something like Disney. I, I, I disagree. My, my attitude towards all this stuff, you know, I'm, I'm not in favor of some kind of cybernetic future per se, but the way I look at this is this technology exists. It existed, you know, throughout the 20th century. And the problem was not the tool itself, but the user of the tool, we have to control these things. Sure. If we don't, our enemies will. That's right. Yeah. You can't become Amish and defeat an enemy who uses the latest and greatest information, uh, industrial, chemical, scientific advantage, advantages that are known to man. They'll, they'll destroy you, unfortunately. If we aren't teaching the children the correct myths, then our enemies will. They'll teach them the wrong ones. They'll That's teach also them the true. ones that will turn them into perverts. You know, yeah. the, the war for the traitors. mind and the hearts are yeah. arguably the biggest so battle. It's not people are probably going to have to be positive. People are probably going to cancel. What's that, Borzai? Well, people are probably going to cancel Disney after uh, it's disclosed that Werner von Braun gave a speech there. 
let's get that trending then but what i was saying what what i was saying nick i know this is something that's near and dear to your heart is that it's not enough to be against something it's not enough to be negative we have to be positive we have to be affirmative in what we are and what we are teaching and what we believe it's not enough to be against it we have to be for something we have to teach our kids to be for something and it's not just our particular orientation you know i mean in our personal lives and, and what we put out there the the reality is like we must control these actual institutions or you know or burn them to the ground they they cannot be allowed to exist in enemy hands i do want to say what do you guys think the future of disney is assuming that covid kind of wears whittles itself down and becomes uh, more of a non-factor and the uh the, the film production resumes and the the cape ship production resumes and the star wars production resumes and the uh the entertainment facilities and theme parks resume you know, do you think that people will immediately fall back into that psychological trap or do you think that having a break from it effectively might have actually done some good and allowed people to try and slowly wean themselves off of the content addiction cycle that Disney has sort of perfected. There may not be a content uh, generation pipeline at the moment because of social distancing uh, requests slash requirements in California, but the fact is I think people are probably consuming more of this content on their screens during a time like this, and I don't think this has had any uh, positive effect in weaning them off of it. It's possible it has, but my intuition would say it hasn't. And I would also say going forward that these companies, uh, Disney is just among many in Hollywood and and perhaps other places, but mainly Hollywood, I would argue, uh, they're very good at what they do. And so we can't underestimate them. And I think the only real opportunity here is to recognize that they are sort of putting their platform into an ideological space that has uh, a lack of appeal to people like us. And I would only hope and hope to encourage people to realize that that is an opening in the marketplace to create better content, frankly, content like Disney used to create. And I think if somebody could do that, I think there would be demand for it. I and I'm hoping I'm hoping we're starting to see the stirrings of more and this is all concurrent with the, with what's been going on in the political environment of more and more people plugging out more and more people moving away from it. I don't know how much of that is enough to make waves when on the ideological level, but it's I'm seeing at least anecdotally more and more disgust and realization of it. It's, you know, like the whole Epcot experience of how it's, it's taking, it's reduced culture to cheapened and overpriced experiences. But what I think Disney's going to do in response to that is they're going to try to adapt to these changes in people's habits. And they may trial run different ways of how they can fast deliver content and get screens in front of people's faces any way possible. Even if they have to go towards a more diminished model that perhaps there is going to be this pause in the whole, everybody goes to the theater and watches this on the big screen experience. Even if they have to put a pause on that, they're gonna figure out, try to look for a way to get people's faces in front of screens again, at least more than, than the dip that they're experiencing right now. Is there is there a future for the Star Wars franchise that they've torpedoed? Is, you know, is there a future for Marvel? I mean, you know, like I, on some level, I do wonder when this stuff wears itself out. People talk about in the '60s there was the uh, 
the Western bubble, right? The, you know, Hollywood was making a ton of Western and period pieces and it all kind of collapsed. Is is there a a bad Disney franchise bubble that eventually is going to implode? Or are people just so addicted to this now as a form of pseudo culture that it'll never go away? That's a that's a great question. I, it's hard it's hard to say because they, they just the culture has been shattered uh, yeah. so, so so much that even if even people kind of drift away from Disney's, they're what are they drifting towards? Well, yeah. That, well, the that's... the war is for the children, though, man. I mean, like the Reddit demographic of of grown men who are excited about Cape shit. These people don't matter. They're they're already dead. So, <laughs> you know, we got to look to the the thing that really does hook me out, man. Is like you know, good people, like people who you know they're not garbage people, but they're working people. You know, I see this a lot. You know, they put like a tablet in front of their kids or whatever because you know they've worked all day. They they can't. It, they're going to show they're going to be showing them content or something, you know, and it's just they don't have they're not engaged quite enough to know what they I mean, what I do. And to these to friends of mine who are in this situation, her parents, I, I, I will loan them uh, as I have a good collection of them. I will loan them uh, Miyazaki films and I get it. You can only watch so many. There's only so many Miyazaki films, but, you know, they there needs to rather than trying to get people to like totally change how they live their lives. I mean, it is what it is. It's they need there needs to be alternatives or at least some way to, you know, have approved content, you know, socially responsible and moral content be approved and be allowed to, sh- you know, so that parents can have it easy and know what they can they can uh, they can show to their kids. Yeah, I'm just hoping that we see a return to families filling their home full of beautiful things and good culture and just anything and just things are just objectively beautiful it's uh, i know we are planning on doing that i I know it's going to be probably a while before i see this in in every home i walk into but uh, i'm hoping for that day where we have something that we can be proud of and that we know is healthy for us and our kids well you know i think on the, the Star Wars front, this is something that I haven't, I haven't really been able to talk to many people about this. And I refuse to like watch these Star Wars movies. Uh, I've only, I only know anything about them just by watching the RLM reviews of these films. <laughs> Everything you need to know, basically. That's all you need to know. Sam. And, and basically what it, it feels like to me is that ironically, ironically, this is the closest thing to optimistic and semi-lighthearted uh, science fantasy or science fiction in like the entire American cultural sphere. Most of American science fantasy or science fiction is absolutely dismal now. Uh, probably the, the best science fiction film in several years was... Blade Runner 2049, which is horribly depressing and uh, existentially, Did not like that movie. existentially freakish. So it is ironic that Disney is actually still trying to be, in a way, optimistic and lighthearted, maybe. But it's for all the wrong reasons. And it's to sell all these kinds of uh, messages. And you kind of get the sense that really what Disney is attempting to do is create 
a lighthearted pseudo culture as a kind of control method for the uh, increasingly unwinding America, right? Like, you know, the, the modern, diverse, progressive take on Star Wars is the closest thing to like na a national unification culture that we have that, you know, a, a people from a wide spectrum can go watch, right? And so Disney is sort of trying to fulfill this role, I, I think, as a national unification um, that is not explicitly political, right? But it is sort of implicitly political. Um, and so that is, is kind of odd in that they are still attempting to be lighthearted, optimistic, forward thinking. Um, but it, it's really an attempt to, I think, make people um, sort of less concerned with the widening social collapse that's going on. I will give a shout out based on what you're saying, Hans. I'm not going to say I fully endorse the movie, but I thought it was a very interesting film because in a certain sense, I took it as almost like the last American science fiction film. Uh, it's a movie called Ad Astra, you know, to the stars. Uh, yeah. Good, good movie. Good movie. It, it is an interesting movie, it, it, but it is a the whole premise of the film is that uh, Brad Pitt's father, played by uh, Tommy Lee Jones, is he's out in this, you know, out in the deep vastness of the void. Uh, and he's, you know, lost contact and doesn't, you know, maybe has gone crazy or something. And Brad Pitt is sent to find him and spoilers. Uh, he does find him. And the reason that he's out there is because he still believes that there's something out there, you know, in the void, that there's there's some something to find some intelligence that the frontier is not just an endless, vast nothingness. And the point of the movie is that, like, he there isn't anything out there. And Brad Pitt tries to get him to come back and he refuses and chooses his death instead. And it, it's that's that's. You know, it's it is like sort of the the final note to science fiction in a certain sense. I mean, it's like there's nothing more to see here, folks. There's nothing more to to dream about or you know speculate about. Well, yeah, I, I think that again, you increasingly get this sense that because American uh, culture is just on the decline, right? Uh, you know, we. I think that there's this very much. It's a film of the decline, no doubt. Yeah, I think there's well this implicit, there's this implicit queasiness that people feel, whether or not they want to admit it, they feel it in their chest, uh, of of anxiety over what is now apparent as a lost future. Right, the future represented in Blade Runner or Ad Astra or even Moon or any any of these like more recent but somewhat depressing and, and melancholic science fiction films, even that's sort of out of the window, I think, uh, of, of opportunity for people. And they realize it now. And so, um, you know, Disney is like this last attempt at being lighthearted and fruitful and, and entertaining. Uh, and as a way of like as a backdrop against not just cynicism of like the 1970s, but I think a deep existential realization that the jig is up like the you know, the civilization is just in complete decline. And we are imagining a future that we wanted to have. But even in the imagination, it's depressing. We can't imagine anything uh, beyond a depressing failure in in a scientific future. 
you know, even even like you look at something like Star, the original Star Trek series, that sort of optimism of the 1960s is just completely eroded. No one thinks anymore that the future is going to be, you know, gentlemen uh, negotiating and being uh, somewhat peaceful and rationalistic and using military power uh, very prudently and focusing on exploration and discovery. You know, that's all out of the window. Now, you know, we like the, the central drama of science fiction is fathers who hate their sons and vice versa and people who question whether or not they're actually a person. And, you know, it's like the entire thing is, is existential dread. And Disney is the only company that is so far not indulged that kind of, um, of dread. And it would be interesting to see if they, in a perverse turn, eventually try and inflict that on families and kids, you know, a sense of dread and, and sort of unbecoming. Yeah, the real future is going to look more like, or at least the real optimistic future, is going to be stacking Mickey Mouse bodies in Disneyland and seeing what's under those fucking tunnels. <laughs> Someday, I'll take you to Disneyland. Someday, I'll take you to Disneyland. We'll go on Mr. Toad's wild ride and follow him straight to hell. But that's not necessary just now. For now, hell's all around us. No rubber devils. No smell of sulfur, but hell nonetheless. Hell more grotesque than any medieval woodcut. Instead of dramatic demons, a lifeless shuffling horde. Without souls, without imagination, without worth and beyond redemption. Someday I'll take you to Disneyland. I'll buy you a pair of mouse ears, tons of cotton candy, and a big helium balloon with Mickey inside. But all that can wait. Today I'll buy you a 357 Magnum and lots and lots of bullets. I'll buy you a stack of AK-47s in a warehouse filled with banana clips, all loaded and ready to go. I'll buy you a B-52 loaded with neutron bombs and lots of soldiers to do whatever's necessary. Disneyland can wait. We have time. 
someday there'll be more of us. Maybe then the world can be Disneyland. And visiting hell will be novel again. <laughs> <laughs>